This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. Now for today's show, it's the irrepressible Chris Skelly. Only a couple of months ago, he won the judo gold in the visually impaired under 100 kilogram category at the Paralympics at Tokyo. He's also a European and world champion. Chris grew up playing rugby and competing in judo from the age of five. But in his teenage years, his sight began to suffer due to ocular albinism. And that led to a huge change in his life in every area. We talk about that and how it's fueled his positivity and how it's fashioned his path he's on now. Stars of learning, understanding the individual, trust between coach and athlete, all pop up in what both turned out to be a really heartwarming, inspiring and light-hearted conversation. We start with the aftermath of the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games, Chris missing out on a podium finish and how that threw even more coals on his fire of further development. Not getting a medal in Rio was a bit um, heartbreaking. And I did this interview and, and I love it. because You do all this media training with you and you're like, please, you know, just try and keep calm, try and give all your answers properly. But then again, both times I've done interviews after I've thought, I've cried like a baby. Like literally just could not stop crying because I mean, all the emotions just come out yet. And the real one was a bit more heartbreaking because of being so close. And I hate it as well because I, we went to this thing around like leave. And all the people had medals. Not all of them, but a few of us didn't have medals and there were a few who did. And I just looked at the ones who did and I was like, it honestly just broke my heart to pieces. Like, you know, you just feel your heart snapping in half. I was well up because I was, I was welling up and my mum had to kind of squeeze my hand to stop me from crying. I, was just, I wanted that medal so badly because of what it meant. But then now I look back on it, it happened for a reason because it made me go back and work 10 times harder and it made me reevaluate where I was struggling. And, um, you know, even now, like, and I know I've won it, but I'm still like me being me. I, I've already done my post analysis by myself. Like I already wrote down what I need to get better at and what I did wrong. So I'm, I'm a proper kind of, I'm a bit of a nut when it comes to that. Because I've just stoked, there's still loads. Like, even watching it back now, I've done, I did so many mistakes during my fights. And, like, it just, you know, it wasn't for me. Like, it wasn't good enough. But obviously, I got the medal and I'm happy with the medal. But, you know, some of the mistakes were, I was very lucky not to kind of get counted or anything like that. But, you know, we'll, we'll work on them sorts them sort of things yeah but the final let's well let's let's maybe talk a little bit about that because it was like a really edgy final right against a, a... it was under control <laughs> I had it all under control the, well he looked I mean he looked the real deal Ben Goodridge that you fought you know he, he was a proper opponent wasn't he to to win a gold medal yeah he's a very good athlete and I'm not going to take it away from him you know I've only lost to him once but that was five years ago just after Rio and it was a, a little German Open and I tried to arm lock him and he just rolled me over and held me down. And uh, one of my good mates was there, Jonathan Drain, and he just looked at me and started laughing because obviously, like, I do believe I'm, you know, I, I can't beat him. But again, that made me kind of really take him seriously because I did, I'll be honest, before that, I did take him a little bit kind of, nah, I can beat him, you know, but he's a good fighter. He's a strong fighter. And he had a great day. Like, he beat some amazing people. But I think one of my mates said to me before <laughs> I went out, just do what you do. And what people jokingly say to me when we do things is that I absorb people's energy. That's my biggest trait. Like I can, my conditioning is quite good. But I can last a long time during fights. So what I do, I just zap their energy out of them. And then when I feel them go like a little bit because they're tired, that's when I pick it up. 
So it's a bit like, have you ever seen when Homer Simpson gets punched in the face? Have you seen that in the cartoon? <laughs> yeah, That's the sort of thing I do. I just get punched in the face repeatedly and I just feel and go, I'm just like this, bonk, like that. But um, no, it was it was a close final, but I just did what I did and, and I got the score and then I just sat back because I didn't need to do anything stupid. And that's from years and years and years and years and years of doing that same scenario and training, having actually maybe stronger athletes come after me and try to rip my head off. But I, I've had that with that situation, you know, and you hear all these amazing, I've listened to so many podcasts with amazing athletes and you hear about practicing the scenario over and over and over and over again. And I've done that over and over maybe a thousand times during training and I've gotten to fight exactly like that. So I knew what I was going to do. And it, but it's just a few occasions I dropped concentration and stuff started to nip on my body, you know, so you just have to deal with it. One of the things that I'd really like to know a little bit more about from the performance side of it is when I'm looking at different sports, so say, um, let's take football, for example, and you're a striker and you've maybe missed a chance or you've made a good tackle or something there's there's a moment where you're away from the action and you're trying to just gather your thoughts now in judo there's lots of those little seconds you know where that where you stop you set yourself up again you realize you know you get your your, you get everything sorted and you go back in those few seconds what goes through your head there do you have any plan there or is it just well you tell me (laughs) the calm me is like going you've got this we know what you're gonna do you're gonna do this this and this and then the other ones that, you know, you see like in the movie, the flaming guy running around, going, and most of the time it's doing that because I'm just like, I'm, for the fir- actually, no, I lie a little bit. For the first 30 seconds, it's the flaming guy running around, his hands in the air, what am I doing? And then it takes me at least an exchange to kind of get into the fight. And then it just calms down. And then I kind of go back to what I know I'm doing. And then I know the, the processes because I, I believe in a lot in performance analysis. Uh, and that's one of the things I did after Rio. You know, I, I worked for performance analysis Chris Barry a lot, who's also a massive rugby fan. So if he hears me doing this, he'd be quite jealous. So I did a lot of work with him. So we do a lot of work behind the kind of scenes to kind of, you know, when I get in that position, I kind of know what I'm doing. And um, it's a lot of kind of like breaking them down. How, what are they going to do? What are their small like little twitches? You know, then how can I put my judo into that? And then, it's a massive kind of like it's. A, I like to do spider diagrams. Yeah, I did over lockdown. There's so many spider diagrams. I want a different opponent, and then I kind of break them down, and then I kind of put my judo where I think would work. So it seems a bit boring, but to me, I love doing it. <laughs> like it's really interesting, and yeah, I think that's what's really helped me kind of take it to the next level. But majority of the time, I'm just winging it. But you're winging it on the back of good information good training and everything else and then kind of sounds like you let go of that and then you let your instincts kick in and some of those some of those thoughts will kick in judo is an instinct sport that's the thing you what i kind of got a lot better at is i i used to plan i'm a big planner where i go into judo fights and break them down and then recently after one of our competitions in warwick um i took a bronze medal you know and i'll be honest i was distraught i walked through the door broke down ate myself through about a massive dominoes and an old like about four size. My fiance sat there going, What has happened? You know, like have you and she said to me, Have you got a medal? But I think because I break because I focus on people so much, I actually just took away from like just let my instincts take hold. And I I've tried to work to a plan. And then after that, I kind of going into into the Paralympics, we kind of just focused on me just doing my judo and not worried about what the plan is. Because I know what the plan is. I know it inside out back to from you know, with my eyes closed. 
it's just fighting on your instincts. And that's what I kind of, I think that's what was a bit different. I just went, right, I'm going to fight. I know what you're going to do. But I'm not going to worry about what you're going to do. I'm just going to try and rip your head off. Make it so simple. You just go on there, rip his arm off, whatever you want to do, just win. And I think that's what is a little bit different this time compared to my previous competitions. That makes sense. Your corner's changed a little bit going into Rio because your coach, Jeff Brady, unfortunately passed away a few weeks before Tokyo. So in your corner, did you have head of head of um, programme? So so Ian Johns, Ian Johns, power and pit coach, he's always sat in my chair for the last 10 years. Like He's my kind of national coach. He's also a good friend of mine. But Jeff Brady was my good coach. So he was kind of... Um, he was where I started with age five, you know, really took me up through the levels and the years. And the, but then that's when Ian John's kind of took over, becoming part of the coach. And it kind of then progressed into more competitions with him. And then by that time in Tokyo, he's been sat in my chair every fight, every competition, maybe for 10 years. So he knew me inside out. He knows when the little guys running around in my head going, ooh, like that, you know, really panicking with a fire going. So he knows me well. So he knows what I'm doing. But suddenly, Jeff, Jeff passed away maybe two weeks, three weeks before I fought. And um, it's really difficult because I was in Warsaw by myself because I was isolating away from everyone because you've heard the horror stories about, you know, poor Joanna Conte couldn't play at Wimbledon Olympics and there was other Olympic athletes kind of not being able to get to the Olympics. And it kind of it really freaked me out. And my fiance, she was an absolute angel because she was just like, listen, I know you want to do this so badly, so just go and isolate away from me. Because she was, you know, I'm not going to let her stop living her life. I'm not going to stop seeing my... You know, let my mum stop seeing her family and everything like that. I went to go and see her. Like, I had to really just become quite selfish and just kind of like that. But then during that period, there's a lot went on. But the main thing was that poor Jeff passed away. And it kind of really broke me because it's a huge part of my life. And, um, and yeah, and, and just having him like, you know, he, he, they have coaches have big influences on you. And uh, he, he had a big influence on my life, where I wanted to go and, and how I'd become, you know, him and my my coach Alan and John, they're very similar. Like you be a gentleman, you you know, you can be really kind of go after people. But then afterwards, you know, you shake hands, you become a gentleman, you know, you make sure they're okay, you know. And that's he taught me that. And and, and to lose to lose him in my life was quite difficult because like I used to maybe give him a call or check in with him, and you know, he's a man of few words, our Jeff. But you know, he 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 knew when he did it right because he just gave you kind of when he got close to me, he gave you a nod. And you were like. I made him impressed, you know, man, a few words, but he's, um, he was a great man. You've mentioned Warsaw a, a couple of times now, Chris, and I wanted to pick up on your first time you went in there. But if I reverse all the way to the start, rugby came first, right? Before judo, when you what, seven? Well, no. So rugby and judo when I was five. So five. Uh, yeah. So I started quite young, both sports. And I was very slow learning from honest men. You know, I wasn't the quickest of people at school, I was very shy, I was not in my comfort zone and my mum and dad were very kind of worried about that because I had to progress for the years and kind of obviously been, I've always been hearing impaired and at the time no one knew what was happening to my eyes but I was always struggling with my eyes but no one knew. So they had to kind of like help me kind of fit into society to kind of go to school to kind of not become and live on my disabilities at the time. So they put me on a judo mat and a rugby field and what two amazing things, you know. And they both complement each other really well because it's both physical sports. And uh yeah, I, I started rugby at Hull Ionians in in Hull. For me, one of the best clubs in the world. There's a, a guy, one of the old England captains called Rob Vickerman, who's a Hull man, will often tell me that Hull is the is the greatest city in the world. 
great, it is a great city, and Hull Ionians is the best team, <laughs> you know, because you've got Hull, Hull Endians and Hull Ionians. For me, Hull Ionians is the best team in the world. The people will doubt that, but it is the best atmosphere in the world because I love it. And it's, you know, I spend a lot of time there and they're making a lot of friends. And, you know, I, it was a typical, so the amazing pictures of us at 12 or 13, you know, with a beer in our hand, which is obviously underage drinking is wrong. It is wrong. However, when it's for some reason, when you go on a rugby pitch, it's acceptable because it is, you know, you've, you've got your parents there. You're enjoying yourself. You are, you know, you look at your dad. I'm allowed a beer. He's like, mum's going to kill me, but go on then, son. You know, enjoy yourself, you know, and that's what it is. And that's that's what I love about rugby. And that's the team atmosphere, the kind of team. Everyone's got your back. If you turn, you know, if you're going to get into a scrap of rugby, you look behind it and you've got three, three or four mates behind you ready to go after it. You know, like, so that's what I love about it. And I think that's what I kind of, for me, took into judo, that kind of team atmosphere. And that's what the Paralympic team is at the moment. We're quite like, we've got each of us back. So if we get into a scrap, I know that, you know, the rest of us will follow me in. And I just, you know, <laughs> it's like, so I've got Louise, judo, food, and rugby. So all four of them are really important. <laughs> you know, I love my rugby. Like last night, I was watching the highlights of the Premiership actually in bed. Half, I love, I just love watching rugby. And just, it is just an escape for me, you know, and it, both of escaped to me, and so I'm waffling on about rugby now. Hey, no, well, I think there's a connection on on a different a number of levels between judo and rugby. I, I used to play with a number eight called Steve Surridge, and he'd he'd represent New Zealand at judo, and he also played for the All Blacks. And I remember going to watch him in one competition, and it took us three hours to get there, and I think he he won in about two seconds, um, nonchalantly did one of the throws that means contest over, and off he went. But when I was on the field with him. He would often emerge with the ball from a you know a melee of players where I'm thinking I, I have no idea how he managed to get that. His awareness of his body and his movement really helped from his judo days. So you look like a hunt. What you're in the hundred kilogram classification now? What were you a, a back rower then? Were you a bit of a no? I, everyone says this to me. I was front row. You were front row, were you? I was front row. They always used to laugh, and it, it's I'm going to get told off of this. But so my coach at the time, Sean Carty, he is. Uh, for me, one of the amazing coaches, you know, typical old fashioned, you'd follow him to the depths of hell, you know, how much I, I am with Johnsy now, like he's just, he was a terrific man. And uh, he coached me from maybe under tens to right to like when my eyes started to kind of really get bad. <laughs> and he was a, you know, when you've done something wrong, because he's like, you know, he shouted from the sidelines, I'm hearing impaired, but I could hear him. <laughs> and like, that's the only guy I've ever been able to hear while I'm hearing aids in. I don't know how he does it. I could hear this voice. I was looking around because I, I can hear something. And it's usually him just shouting at me because I've done something wrong. But it was just some of the best moments. And and he really helped me as well. You know, we talk about Jeff. He was a big, another influence in my life because I, I spent a lot of time with him. You know, a lot of time we did rugby. I did judo on a Tuesday. Then I did rugby. Then I did rugby on a Thursday as well as judo. So most of my nights were taken up doing rugby or judo, which I love. And I made loads of amazing friends. So he was a big influence how I am today and how my work ethic, my kind of like, okay, you're done training, but you've got your extras. You know, you got either scrummaging or your line outs or, you know, you're talking through with the hookers, you know, like, so you did the extras. And that's kind of what I've took from him and what I did with him into judo again. So all of this is kind of transferable, what I'm doing. And it's just, I loved it. Absolutely love rugby. I'm a, but when it comes to that, it's judo and rugby, which are my two favourite sports. One thing that that I'm hearing from you is that you 
you're quite good plagiarist. Like you take little bits from think things people you've met, things you've done to add to your own performance, which is what a lot of top end athletes do. You know, they they see their edges, they see where they can use it for for themselves. And as you got through those teenage years and things changed for you with your eyesight, was there a point where you knew that rugby was going to be something that was in your rear view mirror and judo was going to take over and then you were going to move into what you're currently doing? Um, yeah. I think that's a difficult part as well. You know, like, I, could, I could, you know, I, it was. It was it was a moment, I think, and it was just the best. Because it, it, I'm not going to, I've cried a lot recently, but I'm not going to control my emotions. Here. Um, I was well up at these times because, like, it is that's part of my life which I do really miss that kind of playing the rugby and the, and the beer in the bath where you've got 12 other men, which is like completely normal, you know. And you know, I don't know why we're in the same bath, you think you're clean, but you're not. But you know, it's yeah, it was tough. It was a time in my life where I couldn't play rugby anymore because it was just the light got too much. That's why I'm wearing sunglasses now. You know, I couldn't really see a ball till like it hit me in the face. And it, not a lot of people knew this part of my life either. Like, I kind of hid it quite well from everyone. Like the people who knew it was close to me was my mum. Like, and I always remember doing this. And I used to go home and, and crying around a lot because everything was just dropping around you. And being that at that age, and you see all your mates and everything like that playing rugby and everything like that, and it does hurt because I want to can join them, but I'm just like I can't. Like my eyes are tired. Like I, I, you know, had to sleep a lot because my eyes were just getting really kind of from the strain of trying to, you know, cope with what was happening. And uh, the final straw when I broke down, because I was I went to this we call it a fair in every year, and I went around the fair and I just had the most worst time ever. It was with my mates, and I, I you know obviously I was really happy I mean, with my friends, but again I was just the mountain light slashing my eyes, and that period I was going through it. Uh, where the hospital didn't know what I was doing. So I was seeing, so at the time it was not diagnosed and I hadn't been to America at this point. So I was seeing like nurses for, they thought I had like psych, I was psychologically wrong. So like I had to go to like seeing people regularly and like trying to talk me like, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with you or anything like that. But there was, but they just didn't know what it was at the time. So all this was happening. And then I just one night I just broke down and I was in my mum's arms just crying. I must have been, I don't know how long, but must have been for a few hours just because nothing, there was no one telling me what to do. I just lost my rugby. I was still doing my judo at the time, but I just lost my job as well. Everything was just disappearing out of my life and I had nothing. And I kind of just, I remember just breaking down in my mum's arms and crying and crying and crying and crying and crying and not being able to stop because I just, no one knew what was happening to me. And I was seeing people and I was, you know, going into kind of this, uh, like a psychological ward where like you've got people kind of with schizophrenia and everything like that and I'm just sat there with my sunglasses on I'm like what am I doing here like you know obviously there's something happening but finally I got a diagnosis but that was I always talk about this in most interviews that was the darkest time of my life because no one was telling me what was happening like no one had an answer no one was like holding my hand like I was literally the only person who was holding my hand at the time was my mum like just trying to pull me through it because you know she was watching her son lose everything around her. Like, you know, so she I had a, she was another big influence in my life and how to keep strong and to keep moving forward, even when, you know, like, and I think that's when I knew it kind of, everything was dropping off, I think. Well, there'll be lots of people that will be listening to this podcast and, um, you know, everyone at different points have has dark moments where you kind of feel like everything's falling in around you and you've just, 
what you've just said there, Chris, you know, it's very visceral to me. I can understand, I can understand what, what was happening to you. And when you were at that darkest point, how did you get the moment where you started to move forward again? It wasn't for a while, if I'm honest, Ben. Like, it kind of, because of the diagnosis and getting me to America, it took a while. So but I had to be able to kind of live in the darkness. You know, it sounds, it sounds really kind of Bane-like from Batman. But like, like, I literally had to kind of be kind of unable to cope with them days. And kind of, I was very, very lucky with my mum because she kind of gave me jobs to do. And as, you know, any mum does at that age, she volunteers you for absolutely anything. So I was being volunteered to sweep people's gardens to kind of keep me... You know, she'd come in my bed, like my bedroom, and wake me up at half seven. And some days I was like, "No, I'm not getting up. There's nothing to do, Mum." And she was like, "No, there is something to do. You're coming out with me." And she kind of kept me moving forward. And then the evenings were taken up by judo, so the evenings were already sorted for me because I was still doing judo at different clubs. So kind of, it was just being able to kind of cope in that time. And then you know, because I knew something was going to happen, but it's just trying to stay positive and keep moving forward. And 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 I had that with my mum and you know she kind of also brought me up so I was strong anyway but it was just tough like no one prepares you for that and that's the thing there's no one like with a book to say right you can do this and that and that like you have to literally live with it you just have to adapt in that time and that's I think that's why I you know I'm so I was easy to adapt to things so I just had to I kept moving forward finally got to America they kind of helped push me in the right direction you know I had maybe about seven days of people just prodding around and looking at my eyeballs, shining lights in my eyes, you know. At the time, my dad had to carry me from hospital because I was just so tired and, you know, but finally got an answer and we finally knew with Ocutanus Alberts and I've been living with it my whole life, but no one's diagnosed it. So kind of that was a little bit annoying because I, I was like... How old were you then? Uh, I was about 18 in America. So like 18 years old, people are prodding your eyes and things are coming off. I've got like, I'm carrying like this wire thing around with me because it's trying to like you know, watch what you're doing overnight when you're sleeping. For all them tests, they kind of found out I had extreme photophobia to light, uh, Bell's reflex, my eyes go in the back of my head so I don't dream. And also I had oculotinous albinism. So I had all this, unbeing diagnosed for many years, not knowing. So, but then it then you start to see a bit of a light. And that's when, that's when we started to kind of go, okay, all right, we've got a bit of a diagnosis now. I went back to Britain, you know, still had to kind of do a lot of work with the NHS because obviously we got a bit sick of waiting so we went so they had to kind of sort it all out and understand what the americans were trying to say and then finally got a diagnosis here and then finally i took went back to my british judo team at the time and said listen you know i've I've got a visual impairment do you think i can start being able to kind of travel you guys obviously then you had to get classified by more people because they you know obviously with with the notes you have to be classified by British Blind Sport and then you have to go to IMSA to get classified so there's all these people prodding around in your eyes like years so my eyes have been kind of poked all the time so yeah so finally got a diagnosis finally kind of was able to fight for Britain and then the rest is history you know it's the toughest time of my life and 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 it really made me who I am today but I think everything happens for a reason because if I do have a dark time in my life I know I can deal with it you know because I've already been in it you know, so I know I can cope with it. I know I can live with it. So, yeah, I think it, that's that's who I am today. Like, I've gone through that tough time. I understand what I have to do when I get into that tough time. Keep moving forward. Keep keeping positive. Keep trying to distract yourself. And then, you know, stuff will come. Yeah, I, w- I wonder if your detail around performance analysis now and trying to work out what your opponent's going to do and what you're going to do, whether any of that comes back from when you were a teenager and trying to work out what was happening yeah i think you're right ben i think it could be 
because you had to like leave no stone unturned for this because it, no one knew what it was happening. So everything was being turned over, you know. They must have took about 50 vials of blood out of me in America. I don't know how. I was actually surprised there was still blood left in me the amount of blood they took out of me. But it, it is like that. I do, you're right, I do take that and then leave that into the rest of my life. Like, being really kind of particular of what I'm looking at and, and learning and like, yeah, it's just who I am, I think. I think you learn from experiences and it makes you who you are. I get it. One thing that you mentioned about four or five minutes ago, um, I'm not sure if I heard it right, but you say that you don't dream. No. So what happens with your eyes? So when you dream, I, I got explained by a doctor, which was in America, which was really cool, actually. Because I, I, Me being a love learning, I love to talk to doctors and, and try and understand it. So when, you, so when you dream, your eyes are kind of constantly in a, in a relaxed position. With Bell's reflex, your eyes go to the back of your head. So honestly, when they, they knocked me out one time and they kind of opened my eyes, but they just saw like the white of my eyes and they were just so scared. It was like, oh my God, where's his eyeball? And he, apparently they were trying to just like prise my eye back to come back around. But then they realised how Bell's reflex. So basically when you're dreaming, there's always light in your room. Bits of light kind of shoot up into the air and then hit your eyeballs. And then Nandy goes back to your brain and that's a bit where I'm not an expert, but this is what he told me. And that's how you create a dream. But with me, because my eye goes to the back of my head, I don't dream and there's no light hitting my eye and going to the back of me into my brain. So I just literally don't dream. Luckily, my fiance dreams for the two of us. So <laughs> I wake up in the morning, she's looking at me because I've either done something wrong in the dream or, you know, something's happened. So then she explains to me about her dreams. So I actually live my dream to her, but <laughs> I don't dream. So you're literally like when you when you sleep, the next moment you'll remember is when you wake up. Yeah, I just, I go deep, right? I literally go deep. Louise has to physically kind of shake me to wake me up or I usually get the kind of the arm of death, as I like to call it, <laughs> in the middle of the night to wake me up, which literally shoots me out of bed. Um, but yeah, I don't dream. Have you ever had that analysed? Have you ever d- done some of the some of the athletes I know have had their, their sleep, you know, how deep they can get into the different brain waves, the theatres and stuff where you get that, deep sleep where your body really can repair as fast have you ever had any of that because i get the feeling from from what you're saying that you might have a super strength around you know being able to sleep brilliantly and that's going to you know repair your cells and get your energy up ready for the following day do you know what ben? it sounds really i have never done that i've never done that and, and i don't know i i don't know it's somewhere, some, it's somewhere that i don't really I, I should really maybe have a look upon but i just haven't because I think it's some, there's so many things in, in performance sport that you can look at. And I don't know, I think because I just sleep so well, I don't really, you know, I don't really look at it. Because it's just like, I sleep, I don't dream. I'm, re- I'm a deep sleeper. Like, everyone had, <laughs> it was quite funny, we went to Japan, and everyone was waking up with kind of jet lag, and you know, two or three. And I was just slept through to like six, seven in the morning. You know, absolutely fine. You don't get jet lag. Sometimes it depends, really. Like, but I don't really usually get jet lag. I'm quite easy. I just kind of fit into the time zone quite nicely. You know, I maybe go to sleep a little bit earlier and then wake up a little bit earlier. That's about it. But I still get a good eight or nine hours sleep whenever I go. Like, I never kind of broken sleep. I never have any kind of struggle sleeping. You know, so I just yeah, I kind of sleep anywhere quite easily. People get annoyed with that. Um, I think I get off my mum because my mum's like that. She can literally sleep standing up at points. So. Um, but yeah what about for a lot of people sometimes sleep is interrupted or not as good quality if you're feeling anxious or you've got stuff on your mind before you go to bed for you is that something that you've 
dealt with well now because of the stuff you've gone through? I like to turn up, so I like to, what I make sure I do, I like to watch something. So I watch like a documentary series or recently I watched Dad's Army, you know, in that five week period when I was by myself. I went from through 10 seasons of Dad's Army, loved every second. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. You do. You understand when you're on like constantly flying to break, you do watch seasons. Like I watched Peaky Blinders a few years ago in four days. Wow. From like start to finish. Yeah, that is impressive. I, I was obsessed. I was at points, my, my roommate at the time, Jack Hudson, was just like, I started to talk like him. I was like, I started to just quotes, and he was just like, shut up. You know, he's like, you're obsessive. I mean, I do get quite obsessive when I watch uh, series. Which I sometimes struggle because Louise kind of turns off sometimes. Like, oh no, I'll go to sleep now. But like, I've just died it, you know. So we have to, yeah. But that's another story. But I try to have the switch before bed, basically, turn my brain off, and and like, it's something I've worked really hard with, with kind of anyway, with my psychologist. But I kind of naturally kind of do that anyway. You know, just be able to go right bedtime. Everything else is dealt with in the morning, and you kind of turn a turn a little light switch off in your brain and just kind of go right. That's for the morning. I can't do it now. I'm trying to get good night's sleep. So that's what I kind of try and do. And when you came back from the US, or you might have already been there, there was a moment when you got involved in the full-time program at Warsaw, which is the the National Performance Centre for Judo. Did you go there full-time? Did you live there full-time? At the time, it was in Dartford. So I only went there maybe three or four days. Right. But in 2013, in November 2013, the National Training Centre opened in Warsaw. So it's been there now nearly... Eight years in Warsaw, uh, and it's it's the Wolverhampton University have been absolutely brilliant in hosting us and giving us fantastic facility to train. And I moved there in 2013. First time away from home, so there was a lot of learning again. We talk about learning experiences, and then obviously then going into full time training, which was a bit of a shock for me because I only did it maybe once a day in the evening, and maybe did my kind of whatever the time of strength conditioning was in the day, you know. Even if I was at home, I was trying to find a gym I could do it at. So kind of doing that full time was a bit of a kind of a shock to the body because you, you know maybe we're doing two sessions a day, maybe two judo, one gym. So there'd be three sessions a day actually, which is kind of a bit of a shock to the body. But at the time I was quite young, so I could kind of if I did it now, my body would be like, oh no 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 <laughs> no 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 no. You haven't done your prehab, you haven't done your stretching, you haven't done your recovery. Back then I was a bit like, yeah, I'm ready. You know, a bit of a kind of I don't know shoulders and stuff like that, a bit of a. And I was done, ready. But now it's, it's a bit of a procedure to get onto the map. But that was kind of a new learning experience as well. And then just being able to do judo full time was an amazing experience. You know, like doing it as a job. No one told me I could do this as a job. That's fantastic. And yeah, I, I love doing it. I was very lucky doing it. I was very lucky kind of training full time. I had great, you know, at the time, Ian Johns was coming down and kind of just started to work his way onto the Paralympic head coach role. So it's kind of nice having his experience as well, kind of coming through. Because he was on the Paralympic Inspiration Programme in London with me. So he knew me anyway as a young lad. And then he kind of worked on his way with that and he worked on to the head Paralympic coach. And then the rest is history. So did it take you long to settle into that full-time routine in Warsaw? It did. Like, but I, as you you rightly said, I'm, I was a constant learner. So I was learning different attributes in my life. And I'm still learning now. Like, I like to take... I'm a bit of a plagiarist. That is a great kind of terminology. I love taking from people and making it, I call skellified. You know, so I do it nice. my kind of different way, skellified way. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, so I did take from people and then kind of fitting into that type of lifestyle is quite, it's quite tough at first. You know, your body is getting a bit sore. Your body's not used to maybe training three times a day. But after a while, 
you get quite used to it. I have the opposite effect now. So when I don't train, so I know after this month off, I will be so sore because I need to train. My body's been so used to being thrown constantly. And it's basically, you hear about rugby players being hit, like it's like a car crash. Well, that's exactly the same in judo. But like, as well, he's landed on you. So you've got two car crashes, an initial hit and an initial land. So you're like, Ooh! and then, but <laughs> so that kind of, you get used to that over the years. And, um, and it is quite easy to adapt and you, you kind of fit into doing training regularly. And I miss it. Like I've had this four weeks off and I miss doing training full time. I miss kind of, you know, seeing the lads and stuff like that. I mean, love being with my fiance and love having time. And I do, I am looking forward to that part of my life. Like that is something I'm really looking forward to. But at the same time, we're also kind of still knowing that, yeah, I'm pound a bit champion, but I'm not a world champion and I'm not double pound a bit champion. You know, so there's still two things I've not done yet. So yeah, I'm quite like, it's quite weird. I came off and I was like, right, I've not done these two things now. I need to do that. And my coach looked at me and went, just enjoy the moment. Stop thinking about what you're going to do. So, yeah. That's pretty common from high performers that immediately one thing's done. You know, that unrelenting pursuit of excellence is a bit of a trademark. Now, if I was, go- if I was going to have then, if you were going to scalify like a high performance, like a culture, right? Like there's certain things that you think are absolutely central to helping you become your best version what would it be for my first one being adaptable right you need to be able to adapt to your situation and also learning like i think i'm very lucky like i'm great coaching ian johns who kind of let me kind of go and experience different things so you said i'm kind of a plagiarist i'll go to a brazilian jiu-jitsu club jiu-jitsu club in warsaw uh, gracie barra uh ws1 i think it's called yeah really good amazing club amazing uh BJJ coach, Neil Simkin, amazing coach. And I kind of went to him just off the Rio. I went to him before Rio, but then we had to stop because we were getting into kind of the big, the big thing. And I, I trained with him and he helped me kind of see stuff as well, like really look into the detail thing. Then I went to a wrestling guy, same thing, you know, uh, Wolverhampton Wrestling Club in, a, in maybe 2018, 2019. He started to do a bit down at the National Training Centre with the judo people. Then I kind of then used his knowledge. So for me, it's learning from different sports. You know, like learn from I look, I take some amazing things from rugby. Like I've watched some Johnny May stuff and Kyle Sinclair stuff on how they recover. That's I took that on board. And then for me, it's when you have a high performance, you need to be able to kind of learn and kind of learn from people's experiences and understand it, take it back, mix it all up, going, mm, that doesn't work for me, throw that out. You know, you see, like you see a mad scientist when you go like just when they make Frankenstein, that's it. When they make Frankenstein, you see him going like that. You know, chucking things out now, keep that. No, that's really how it is for me. You know, that's how you kind of get my judo. You know, you kind of, oh, I don't want that. No, I don't. I keep that. No, I keep that. No. So that's how that's how I work. And I think if you have a high performance center, if you can do that, I think that's how it that's how it kind of success breeds. You know, learning from people, learning because you know, Ian Jones would say he's not the most he's not the most knowledgeable guy in everything. You know, he's great at certain things and he can tell you everything on one thing, but he can't tell you on the other. So he'll say to me, go and ask people, go and learn from people. Then we'll come back and we'll figure it out together. So that's why that's why I think we'll work for High Performance Centre. Chris, you've mentioned like, I think at least five, maybe six coaches that have said you've had they've had a big effect on on your career from, you know, Hala Innings all the way through. All of those, like for you to have got on with them and for them to have got got you to be and help you become your best version what's been the consistent factor what do you require from a coach what's the one thing and I'm not talking about you know the technical stuff I'm talking about those softer skills what do you really need from a coach 
I think what all of them have in common is being able to make a connection with the players. It's having that, being able to bridge with them, you know, and being able to kind of understand them and help them to get what they want. I think everyone who I've dealt with over the years have kind of understood me quite easy. I don't know if I'm just an easy ball person to understand. It's quite simple to understand, maybe. But I think that's the biggest thing, is having it, maybe they're to make a connection between coach and player. And I think that's the biggest thing I think someone needs to be able to do is like, yes, be an absolute towards them on the training mat and really go after them, make them go into that kind of dark space and like understand to kind of live in that kind of, even when you're tired, you're going to stand up and keep moving forward. Even though like, even if you've just kind of had a ruck and it's 80 minutes in, you know, you're able to kind of get up and carry on, go to the next one and go and compete, you know, and same with judo, you know, and you haven't got any energy to stand up. You were the first one to stand up. You're the first one to go forward. And that's what I think, being able to have that as a coach. And then also, you have to put an arm around them and go, you're all right. You're okay today. What is it like at home? Or what's it like, you know, are you having issues off the mat? Anything I can do. So I think that's what a coach needs. Like, you know, being able to kind of switch between the two. We are, I have quite a, a good relationship with my coach now, Ian John. Like he, we have a good player-coach relationship. You know, sometimes we do get it wrong and sometimes we maybe get, you know, not if it's perfect, you know, like we do have bad days, you know, I might, he might have a bad day and I might have a bad day, you know, but at the same time, even if we have bad days, there's still the, there's a common goal. There's still a common kind of where we both see what we want to do. And it's also being able to trust him and trust in his processes, you know. Sometimes I question it and I think a good player-coach relationship, you're able to question your coach and go, why do you have to do that? Like, I don't understand that. But um, I'll give you an example. So, he had a mad idea. Have you seen blood flow restriction? Yeah, yeah. I tried it with the um, with the English players back in the day. Um, katsu is it called katsu or something? Is the Japanese version, but it's occlusion or, or something is the word, isn't it? It's called. Yeah. So he's come to me one day. He's he's trying it on um, my good friend Jonathan Drain, who's just injured his knee, and he's gone right. I've got a great idea, and I've gone. What you want to tie my arms up and then make me do an exercise and then go fight? Yeah, yeah. Great idea. And I me, me here's me going, no, I don't want to do that. That sounds horrible. But then that's where part of you go, okay, I'm going to try it. As much as it absolutely hurts me and I despise BFR training, it's become one of our biggest tools in being able to help me kind of deal with the, the pressure of being in them five for eight minutes and still me got to be able to grip up and fight like a, a thousand percent. So for me, that was a, a, a great example of kind of trusting him thinking it's maybe not a great idea at the time, but then actually then realising it is a great idea and we've used it ever since. So he's having that kind of ability to trust him, even though we're going, no, <laughs> why do I want to do that? It's a good example because that BFR, the blood flow restriction stuff, I guess you could have done it one of two ways. He could have either explained the science to you and said, right, this is why I think it will be a benefit. But because you had such a trusting relationship, you know that he's not going to put something in front of you that isn't to your benefit and you and and so you went around it that way and you got you got buy-in but he also knows me if he explains the scientific side he'll lose me he knows he knows that i will not understand the big words i'll be honest not the most great with my words some people berate me for the use of my words so then they explain scientifically you know and they're stood stood there scratching my head he was just like listen trust me and that's where we have to kind of have that good relationship with a coach trust me i've got this and then that's how it happened. Mm. You know, knowing that I'm not going to understand the scientific side, I'll never will, not the toughest of people, you know, but I will understand what I am good at is 
accepting what he's going to say, but then trialing it. And I think that's what we have a great relationship. One thing that, that I'd like to talk about is another thing that you overcame because your hip injury that you got, and you, you know, you talk about it again very vis- viscerally, where you, you know, your legs are, you're in a practice fight with, with one of your mates, and your legs are, are quite wide, and you just hear, feel something pop, right? So I've got to get absolutely great for telling this story because I still live off this story six years later. But I like to say, you didn't go through it, I did. So basically, um, <laughs> We went to a good, uh, went to E. John's old club, Grimsby, great friends. Love uh, Terry Oltoff and Jenny Oltoff. Fantastic people, lovely atmosphere in the club. We talk about club, like a club atmosphere. They've created an amazing one in Grimsby. And um, I was there, we've just been up in Scotland, me, Jack and uh, Ian John's. So we've been on a kind of a journey together. And then we went to Scotland for a week, trained in Scotland, came down, we did, you know, a typical four-hour car journey, a bit of a stretch straight onto the map. You know, very young, could do that. And in the half, towards the end of that, last night, last fight of the night, I'm like, yes, right, no injury, no curry, fantastic. My, my good friend, Jack, turns in. I try to stop him because I don't like getting thrown by him because then we have, a bit of a, we have a bit of a fun relationship and not being thrown. And I feel pop, instant pain. And I was like, that's not good. And I kind of put my hand and try to feel all my hand and I felt kind of a bone sticking out of my hip. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, I mean, you know, this is not good. And then I just started screaming. <laughs> the coach was a bit like, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. Just get him off the mat. You know, he's fine. You know, just because, you know, you don't expect anything bad. But then he kind of, he then he kind of started to realise going, ah, oh, that's not good. <laughs> you know, like, but still kind of trying to play cool at the same time. He's a bit nervous. Um, and then I sat on the mat for three hours because the ambulance didn't come for three hours with a hip out, no pain. They sent me someone. This is where they sent me someone. I was like, oh, you're going to give me paracetamol. I can't, I can't give you paracetamol. Can't give you what you want. I go, why? I can only take your temperature and your in your vitals. So for three hours, this poor lady had me screaming and going, and I did say some horrible stuff to her because at the time I was not in the right frame of mind. And, bah, you know, and I got really angry because no one was giving me pain relief. Admittedly, if I ever meet her again, I'll give her a big hug. Like three hours on the mat. It happened at nine. The ambulance didn't get to me for half twelve. I didn't get to hospital to half one. So I was no pain relief. I was screaming in pain. And um they popped it back in and then, but this was like, this was like six weeks before we went to the World Games and I needed to get points to qualify. So I was then in my head, I was running around the houses, that little guy with a flame again going, Aah! so trying to deal with him. And then they popped it back in. I had maybe five days in the hospital because I had to, they, they wouldn't let me out without seeing I could walk, even though I know I could, you know. So I had five days in the hospital, managed to get out of the hospital. And then, then this is where it kind of gets a little bit quicker. So I go and see, so I go, I go to the people, they're like, you're not fighting in the World Games. You're not fighting. I was like, I need to fight. So we're having these arguments. I was sat with the physio, my coach, SNC guy, the Nigel, uh, PD, Nigel Donahue, and he's like, no, nah, you're not going to fight scout. I was like, right, let's go and see the hip guy. Let's go to here and see the hip specialist, see what he says. So this is like two weeks in. I've only got four weeks to go. The guy goes, yeah, uh, you know, it's not possible, Chris. We're not going to we're not going to be able to do this. I was like, listen, let's just go in first. So they did keyhole surgery, found out there wasn't really much damage. Like, there's not terrible damage to my hip. There was maybe like, there's like a little ligament that sits between your hip joint and your hip bone. And like, it connects. And that's the only thing that was damaged. They actually, he said to me, he couldn't believe the way it came out. There was no more damage than it was. I've got a clue. Some people think I'm made of jelly. And at that point, I think I was. 
But so no, I, I was lift this and ligament. But even so, he said, I don't think you should be fighting. So then I spoke to my PD. I was like, listen, let me fight. He refused to let me fight, but if I give you 1%, if you could do all the benchmarks in three weeks, I'll give you it. Okay. I said, right. I didn't go home. I spent 24 hours a day on the ice machine. Uh, I had to learn how to walk, fight, and be able to kind of stand again in three weeks. I did it. I met all the benchmarks. And after three weeks, I did all that. I, did it. I suppose I have the stitches in for like four weeks. I had them in for 10 days. So I remember because I did a judo session and I felt I was like, I could, it came open again. So I had to re-glue because I felt like blood running down my leg. So they report that they put it back together. I was fine. Like I thought, oh, it's only a bit of blood. They put it back together. And then I managed to fight, do a bit of judo, a little bit of kind of movement, nothing kind of like fighting, but like being able to do a bit of grip fighting. Did all that. And in three weeks, they gave me the green light because I had to sign a form saying I did this in case it came out again. Did all that, went through all that. And then I took a medal at the World Games. So that kind of then again, I broke down in tears because like three weeks ago, I was sat in an operating theatre, like not being able to kind of even walk. And then they're saying, you're not even going to fight. So that again, that was kind of, that's, that's, I just did it. I think, because I wanted to get to the, get, like, if I'd got a medal there, I was in a very good position to get to the pound of the game. So having that as a goal, I knew I had to fight. I knew I had to. And to be honest, I fought like an absolute dog that day. I didn't, I didn't even throw anyone. I just booted and I didn't do any amazing judo. There was no amazing judo. It was just either picking up penalties or just absolutely dogging them down and strangling them while locking them. Basic judo. And I managed to win it. And I, and I actually beat, at the time, the Paralympic silver medalist. Oh, I've never beaten him before. And, you know, after that, I've beaten since. So, you know, it was just, I think them three weeks were the most longest three weeks of my life, being able to kind of have everyone say, not going to be able to do it. You know, you've got no chance of doing it. And then be able to stand on the mat and then get a medal was, yeah, it's quite special. And on that mat, like you had no negative thoughts in there about your injury? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, that's running around in your head. But then a part of you goes, you need to stop that now block it, you know, you need to get on, on with it now. So it, you have, there's, there's all this water kind of flooding at you. Like, you know, like you see a burst pipe and it goes in your face. And you're like, no, we're not going to think about that. If it comes out, it comes out. And um, <laughs> You're very good at doing that because that's about the third different, well, you've used different analogies for it, but it's about the third time you've mentioned how you, you're so good at blocking negative thoughts. Yeah, I think also it's like, we talk about that coach trust relationship i trusted in my coach in john's even though like a lot of people he i knew he had my back so me and him knew i could do it he was quite hard on me like he made me i had to i had to live like a monk for three weeks four weeks making sure i ice rehab every day i maybe rehabbing twice a day so i do an ice strength rehab then into gym back into rehab back onto the ice machine and i just i used to go to sleep with the ice machine on overnight I just left it on like a 30-minute cycle. So 30 minutes on, 30 minutes off, just to kind of get the information down. And I wasn't allowed to take uh, any kind of... So I wasn't allowed to take any morphine. I only could take paracetamol, but I then stopped taking it because the pain kind of subdued a little bit. So, yeah, it was it's, it happened for a reason. So, you know, And that's when we say we talk about going through the dark times. You know, I knew I hit a dark time, but again, I knew because I went through it maybe... What was it? I was 24 at the time. 20, no. I was only 22, so I went it through four years ago. So I knew I could go, I knew I could deal with it. I knew I could kind of, even when people are going, no, you can't do it. No, it's physically impossible. You will not be able to do it in 21 days. I was like, yes, I can. You give me a percent and I'll give you whatever I can give you. 
Luckily, it was a medal, you know. Even stepping onto the mat in Korea was a huge success. Like, they were even tempted to let me walk out, bow on, bow off. And I was like, I'm not going there to do that. My coach, Ian Johns, was exactly the same. We're quite similar in that sense. But knowing that I could deal with that before, I just, yeah, I think that's what helped me. Everything happens for a reason. And I think having that when I was like maybe 18, 19, and then having that at 22, I knew I could live with it. And I knew I could go through it. I knew I could go through the pain. I know I can go through the tears and the tantrums that I'm going to have because I know it may, you know, might not happen. But it's a good story. It's a good story. It is a good story. And I'm sure that there are many more exciting chapters ahead for Chris. Having this conversation remotely didn't stop that feeling of the energy and the positivity seeping across the broadband. It's easy to have that as the major takeaway from our chat. How Chris's energy and enthusiasm overcame all the obstacles he's faced, but it's really the origin of that energy that struck me. Undoubtedly, the nucleus of all his success is him, but his ability to trust those around him and at the same time gather information and in his words, skelify that, is, I'm sure, another big reason for his success and why he's a role model for so many. I've always believed athletes have the answers, they just might not have them all right now. And by using the information around them, modifying it, and having people that they trust help mould and guide them is how you get to your best version faster. Any references we mentioned in this chat, we will make sure in the show notes and you can find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast. Chris can be found on social media at at ChristopherSKE2 on Twitter and at Christopher.Skelly on Instagram. And if you have any commercial opportunities for Chris, then you can also drop a note to Amy at twotonecreative.co.uk. You can also find all the shows on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. I'd really love you also to write a review, not just on this show, but on all the other ones you've listened to. It really makes a difference and just helps drive more people towards listening to the Ben Ryan podcast. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to bringing you another great chat next Wednesday. <laughs>